Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. morning church come on you fired up for God's word say yes all right then grab your Bibles let's grab our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 excited to be back with you excited to be called upon on this particular Sunday to open God's word with you and then you look at the text for today and then you think to yourself all right Lord here we go right what do we have before us a portion of God's truth Today we have the privilege of studying the very words of Jesus Christ. Today again we study the Sermon on the Mount. But as we enter today, I feel compelled, of course, as we do each and every Sunday, but today in a special way, to ask for the Lord's grace to prevail over us as we discuss the commitments and the way that believers in Jesus Christ are to keep their commitments and how Jesus empowers us to do that. May we ask him, to go before us as we go. And so, Father, we come to you in prayer. We ask for your grace. We ask for your strength. We ask, Lord God, for your wisdom, for the superintending of your Holy Spirit to be bathed, saturated in every word that is spoken here today. God, may we leave here empowered by your grace, moved with empathy and compassion, but yet a deep resolve as well, Lord God, for for the truth that you have for us. And so now, Lord, we pray these things. Move in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all of Mission Church said? All right, Lancaster and Myerstown campus as well, we continue our summer series. Our summer series called Different. Say different. I've noticed some some of the pastors haven't had you. They have you out of practice and repeating back, and so we'll get you all caught up on that. But indeed, we are in this sequel of sorts. If you're new to Mission Church, this is a sequel. Last summer, uh, we began the study of the Sermon on the Mount uh, by studying a sermon series called Blessed. It was called Blessed because eight times Jesus Christ, coming out in the greatest sermon ever preached on that mountainside, said, Blessed are. Eight times he said, blessed are, which means happy are, fortunate are, blissful are, peaceful are, secure are. What did he say? Blessed are those who are rich, rested, and highly regarded, right? Say nope. Nope. Instead, he said the opposite. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are hungry. You see, Jesus was saying as he opened up the sermon, blessed are those who see their need for a Savior. Blessed are those who are exposed to their sinfulness. Blessed are those who weep over what they see in the mirror without Jesus. And just over and over and over again, we've got to continue to put this flag in the ground and stomp our feet in security here that we are blessed not by what we have, not by what we achieve, not by what gets parked in our garage or how big our house is, but what we've received from Jesus Christ in our salvation. We can't say it enough. We're not blessed because of how we feel. We're blessed. Why? Because Jesus has pronounced us as blessed. Are you saved? Are you saved? If you're saved, say yes. Are you saved? Then you're blessed. If you're saved, then you're blessed. And this entire sermon, why do we keep coming back here each and every time we start, is because if we don't anchor ourselves in the reality that we're blessed, everything that we're called to do is only going to overwhelm us. And so what Jesus is doing now as we begin to unpack these portions of the text is teaching us, because you are blessed, this is now how you live He's not teaching this is how you live so you can be blessed. But because you're blessed, I've now empowered you to live differently. Jesus has blessed us to be different. He's blessed us to be different. He's blessed us to be different. But somehow or another, we're working super hard to blend in. And in the first century culture, as Jesus looked out over that mountainside, what was he doing? He was looking upon his true followers and saying this, I want you to be different. I want you to be different than the pious Pharisees. I want you to be different than the snobby religious scribes. I want you to be different from the wandering world. We're called to be different. Come on, participation. Turn to your neighbor and just say, we're different. Now give them a weird look and say, you're really different. How different are we? Uh, Jesus has begun to tell us how different we are. He's called us to a different kind of impact. And so right after the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, you are called to be salt and light. You're going to have a unique impact in this world. You see, as salt, you're going to preserve the righteousness of God. I'm going to empower you to stand for what is right. And as salt, you are going to preserve my goodness and my truth over this world. The gates of Hades will not prevail. You, like a salt agent, will keep the world from decay, from decaying further and further into sin. As the light of the world, what are you going to do? We're going to live the truth. We're going to proclaim the truth. We're going to stand for the truth. We're going to be the truth. We're going to be children of the light. How are we different? We're called to have a different kind of impact. Verses 13 through 16, salt and light. How are we different? He's called us to a different measure of great. We don't strive for greatness and achievement on this earth, although great achievement may be part of God's plan for you. 
But what did Jesus say? I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And here's the deal. You want to be righteous? You want to be great in my kingdom? Then your righteousness, verse 20, it better exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You want to be great? You got to be different. You want to be different? You got to trust me. Different kind of impact, different kind of great leads us to what? A different kind of standard. And last week, Pastor Ed began to walk us through now this difference, the standard, how Jesus called us to not be angry as the world is angry, for you've heard it said. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, even if you look upon lustfully, The standard's being raised. Unless we anchor ourselves to the attitudes, none of us are capable of holding to the standard that Jesus has called us to, amen. And so today, Jesus is now going to move into this challenge. As the standard is being raised, so too is our commitment. Jesus is calling us to this, a different kind of commitment. You're to have a different kind of commitment than the pious religious people. You're to have a different kind of commitment than those in the world that is wandering around being tossed to and fro. We are called to have a different kind of commitment. Say commitment. Amen. A different kind of commitment. Today, Jesus is going to address the most precious commitments in our lives. He's going to call us to a high standard regarding the most precious, most intimate, most close to home. Today, Jesus is going in. In our passage today, he's going to call us to commitment in our marriage and in our homes. And he's going to call us to have a commitment to our word. But I think you know as well as I do, for us to be able to keep these commitments, as I've already said, now coming into this introduction, that is only possible through a commitment to the Lord, point one. Jesus is calling us to have a commitment first and foremost to him. Before we launch into the abruptness of this particular text, we've got to anchor ourselves and go back and ask ourselves this question. How is our commitment generally? What kind of a person are you as it pertains to commitment? Are you a committed person? How do you go about demonstrating your commitments in life? If you're committed to a goal, what do you do? If you're committed to a goal, you devote your time. You devote your energy to it. If you're committed to your work, what do you do? You show up and you give your full effort. If you're committed to a cause, you put yourself out there. You stand up. You, you, you speak out for it. You, you wave the flag. You tote the banner. You wear the t-shirt. You rep the cause. And when it comes to relationships, you sacrifice for it. It's fascinating to me. Every person in this room is committed to something. Deep down ingrained and sewn within the fabric of each and every one of us is the desire to commit, is the impulse to commit, is the impulse to apply ourselves to something. And we recognize intuitively, I think, 
that in order to really stay committed, we know it's going to take devotion. We know it's going to take effort. We know it's going to take courage. And ultimately, we know to stick anything out, it's going to take sacrifice. At least that's been my commitment. How about you? As I was reflecting on the thought of commitment, I was trying to think back, like, what was one of my earliest commitments in life? Like, what was one of my first, like, real commitments? Maybe you had this moment as a child. You remember, remember that moment you chose your best friend? Remember that? Like, that was a big deal. Like, hey, you want to you be friends? Yes. Where could this go? Oh, my word. I think you're my best friend. You want to be best friends? I think I do want to be your best friend. Let's be best friends. Like, there was no ceremony necessarily. You know, there was no kind of a, a big hurrah. Like, a, you didn't post it on Facebook back then, although there may have that setting now. Maybe it's there. Someone text me and let me know. Facebook me and let me know. I may get, I may get like 15 best friend requests after the service today. Who knows? But what happened once you, once you had a best friend? What did that mean? It meant now you were devoting yourself to spending time together almost every single day. When you declared that you had a best friend, not only were you going to spend your time together, but what? You were going to start working together. You're going to start building forts together. You're going to start standing up for causes together and fighting those imaginary bad guys that were coming your way, right? And I don't know where I learned this. I have no idea where I learned this. But intuitively and instinctively, we, we had this thing where we like, we bloodied our knuckles. Anybody? So gross. <laughs> not advocating for this at all. Certainly not in today's culture. Headline news, don't do that. But back, back then, like bloody our knuckles and then we push them together and we'd be like, blood brother. You have a blood brother? You have a blood brother? For God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. When I think about the thought of commitment in relationships, I have to ask myself this, do I, do I have a blood brother? Romans chapter 5, verse 8, you know, verse 9 goes on even further to say what? We have been justified by his blood. How much more then shall we be saved from the wrath of God? You know, the book of Romans goes on later in chapter 17, 8, verse 17. It says this, we are also children of God. And as children of God, we are now co-heirs with Jesus Christ. You know how you become a co-heir with somebody? You are their sibling. You actually have a blood brother in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in essence, is our older brother. Through him, through the shedding of his blood, covered over us, not through the bloodying of knuckles, but through the shedding of the spotless lamb of God you have in Christ Jesus. One who is completely committed to you. If we have any hope of keeping the commitments of this earth, it only is going to be made possible when we recognize that we have somebody completely committed to us, not because of our goodness, but for his own glory's sake. 
What's beautiful is we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And not, not only this, do you recognize 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 goes on to say that not only are we able to have fellowship with the Lord and keep our commitment to the Lord because of his commitment to us, but it's actually the shedding of Jesus' blood that enables you and I to stay committed to one another as well. Listen. 1 John 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the sight as he is in the light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. For it is the blood of Jesus, his son, who cleanses us from all sin. We're blood brothers. Not, not in the smashing of knuckles, but in the covering of Jesus' blood over all of our sin. We want to talk about commitment, friends. Commitment is only possible because of Jesus Christ's commitment over us. At the center of every commitment is the integrity of our God. At the center of every union is the integrity of our, of our God. You and I, we can be different. You and I can have a different level of commitment, not because we have the will or the backbone or the stride and see, but we, we have a God who has blessed us. We have a God who has secured us. And before we move on and dive into the sensitivity of this subject, this particular anchor needs to be set. Jesus Christ keeps his commitments. And every reason for us to break our commitments, Christ is taken care of. Think of the most precious commitments in your life. Think of the most trivial commitments in your life. And now think about the reason why you break those commitments. You make a promise, but then you become afraid. You make a promise, you take a vow, but something occurs that causes you to feel deeply insecure. You make a promise, you say you're gonna show up. It's an outside gathering, but now it's raining and great discomfort will be on the other side of the day. Why do we break our commitments? Fear, insecurity, discomfort, pressure, personal ambitions creep in, impatience, hurt, doubt, mistrust, and the list goes on and on and on and on. But what does Jesus do? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Are you fearful? Are you feeling insecure? Find this security in Jesus Christ. He has you. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn. Does discomfort cause you to want to break your commitments? Know this. Jesus Christ is your comfort and he is your strength. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are strong but who perceive to be run over. What does Jesus say? No, 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 no. Blessed are those who are meek for they shall inherit the earth. They, he has promised you a future that is secure even in the midst of your heartache and your pain right now. 
for us to keep our earthly commitments, we have to have our eyes set on this. Jesus Christ is our blessed strength. We break our commitments for personal ambition, but Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Why? You'll be satisfied. We want to break our commitments because of how we've been treated, but Jesus says, blessed are the merciful because you'll receive mercy from me. But it's just too hard on this side of heaven. And Jesus says, yeah, but blessed are the pure in heart for one day you'll see me. And what you're going through today is merely temporary. One day you'll be in my presence forever. Friends, think about it. All of the reasons why we're tempted to break our commitments in this world, we find our security and our strength to keep them through the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what do we do? Whatever is coming up inside of you, whatever you feel that desire to throw in the towel, whenever you long to quit, whenever you've made that promise and you want to walk away from it, after you've, this thing has occurred, what are you able to do? Lord God, I know, I know that I'm secure in you. I know I can find my comfort in you. I know that my future is secure in you. I know that this longing in my soul will be satisfied in you. And Lord God, it's your mercy that I need. And Lord God, it's your glory that I long for. And Lord God, it's ultimately in your presence one day where I ultimately will be. And so what is this struggle on this side of heaven knowing what awaits me there. Now, friends, now, in the light of Jesus Christ's commitment for us, what is he doing in this text? He's saying, listen, I'm committed to you. Now, show the world what it looks like to be committed to me. Jesus has blessed us to be different. He's empowered us to be salt and light by enabling us to keep our commitments when the world is throwing it aside. Which leads us to our second point. Which leads us to the abruptness of this particular text. In order to keep our commitments, it means a commitment to Jesus. That commitment to Jesus is born out of Jesus' commitment to us And now the second most important decision, the second most important commitment we can make with our lives, of course, is the commitment to marriage. And so Jesus comes and says, well, you've heard it said, verse 31. Well, you've heard it said, well, now this, it was also said, that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual morality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I don't know about you, but these verses feel very abrupt. A 
as a shepherd, as a pastor, knowing so many of your stories, everything inside of me longs for Jesus to expound here. I want him to say more. I want him to just go a little bit deeper. I like to rely a little less on cross-references here, Jesus, because you're preaching a sermon. And if these two verses were sufficient for the day in which you address things here, I got to believe they're sufficient for us as well. So what are you doing? Church, I look out across the landscape of this room, I see. I see children who have come out of separated homes. I know that for some of us, just the mention of the word divorce creates an angst. There are those in this room who I know have done the unthinkable. Who bore the brunt of the unthinkable. Who forgiven the unthinkable. There are those who've pursued divorce yourselves in this room. There are remarried couples in this room who you've been married before and now today you are here as a committed remarried couple. There are unmarried people here who long to be married and you're exasperated by the thought of people who throw away the thing that you long for. There are those in this room who think it could never happen to them and there are others in this room who are contemplating the idea right now. Oh, how I wish Jesus expounded here. But you know what he did do? He gave us the Beatitudes. You know what I believe with all my heart that Jesus wants you to hear his gospel is sufficient for you. I think this is why he grounded. Why did we take so much time on point one? Because he wants you to know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who need his mercy. Blessed are those who've been wronged. Blessed are those who've done wrong and recognize that it's wrong. And now you've come to Jesus and he wants you to hear today. His grace is sufficient for you. Like take it to the bank. Count on it, stand upon it, sleep on it, rest in it. Jesus Christ forgives you of your sin when you repent. Call it what it was. Confess what it is. And he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's start right there. He longs to heal our hurts. He longs to forgive the broken sin. He longs to free us from our past. He longs to give us a hopeful future. He longs for us to move on in his strength. He longs for you to be a beacon of his grace. He longs for his gospel to adorn through your broken vessel. That's how it works. 
And so today as we approach this text, let me do my loudest preaching here. Jesus' grace is sufficient for you. Jesus' grace is sufficient for you. But yet, as we come to this text, Jesus is brief. As we come to this text, he is, has a measure of brevity on purpose. As we come to the text, there's a context here. There's a point that Jesus is making, and we have to make sure we anchor ourselves to it. He's not giving an exhaustive teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce. We've done a deeper study. We've done a deeper dive as a church in our series through the book of Mark. You can go back and listen to our message on Mark chapter 10 for all the particulars surrounding our church's position on remarriage and divorce. I would encourage you to do so. But what's clear in this particular text, in this particular passage, that Jesus actually is being straightforward on purpose. Remember, he's setting up an antithesis. Call it a juxtaposition if that helps. In other words, what is Jesus doing? He's confronting the religious. He's got a particular audience in view. Indeed, he is raising the standard from what the perception was in that day. He's confronting the religious for what? For the mess that they've made of God's law. He's, he's confronting the religious what? For the way that they have led others into untruths. If you remember back in verse 19, chapter 5, verse 19, remember what Jesus warns? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is one of those instances. The religious leaders have laxed the law of God. And Jesus comes out and he's going to confront this lax. Put your thinking caps on, get your pens ready. What is this thing that Jesus is confronting? Well, within the first century, there were two schools of thought regarding marriage and divorce. There was a school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And these two schools of thought disagreed on the grounds of divorce, which were given by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. There, Moses essentially says, if a man gives a certificate of divorce to his wife for some undecency, for some undecency. And so the debate is, what is this some undecency that divorce was permitted, was given this provision back in Deuteronomy chapter 24 by Moses, and now this. Both schools of thought agreed that this was the case, that adultery was included in this some undecency. The Shammai group, they held, that was the only reason, that's it, no more, that. The Hillel group, however, they believed that this sum of decency could be anything. And guess which was the prevailing, guess which group was kind of the more dominant opinion of the culture of that day? Just guess, just guess, just guess. The second, you could divorce for any reason. It was well documented. If a wife were to burn dinner, a certificate of divorce could be Granted. If she lost favor in the sight of a man, a certificate of divorce could be granted. You can begin to see why Jesus is being very direct. You can begin to see why he is raising up 
When you realize that in this culture, the disillusion of marriage is regarded as simply a matter of paperwork. And once this paperwork was filed in the eyes of that particular culture, the man and the woman was then free to remarry and to go on their way. And Jesus essentially rising up and saying, this was never the way God intended it. No way. He never desired for this sacred union to be approached so flippantly and so casually. He's saying, look, you may file the paperwork, You may view it as over, but what Jesus is saying is that in the eyes of the Lord, it's not. Which is why Jesus goes on to say, whoever divorces, let them give a certificate of divorce, but I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual morality makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And what he's saying in the eyes of the Lord, they are still wed. Therefore, on the consummation of the remarriage, it's regarded as adultery in the initiating of the consummation. What is Jesus doing? He's reminding them of what he would later expound on in Matthew chapter 19, what? Marriage is a sacred union before the Lord. Every marriage is a sacred union before the Lord. It is, there's a triangle, of, there's a trinity of union that the husband and wife, as we vow together, there, we are unified under the Lord And so in Matthew chapter 19, he goes on, you remember this dispute between he and the Pharisees. The Pharisees come up to him, verse three, chapter 19, and says what? They came testing him and they say this, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You hear the debate? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now verse five. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, what God has joined together, what God has joined together, God is in the business of arranging marriages, what God has joined together, let no man separate. But they push back on him. Watch, watch. Well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her on her way then? Why did, why did Moses command this then? Why? Why? Watch, watch, watch. Jesus is like, watch. And he said to them, because of the hardness of your own hearts, Moses allowed. Because of the hardness of your own hearts, Moses allowed. Because of the hardness of our own hearts, Moses allowed this provision. Come on, Pharisees. Come on, religious leaders. Read your Bibles, what Jesus is saying. Read your Bibles. Jesus, Moses never commanded it. He allowed it. Why? For the hardness of your own heart. And for the ministry to the one who was cast aside, that they might be freed. I 
I did it for the hardness. It was provided. It was a provision, never commanded. Watch what he says. But from the beginning, it wasn't supposed to be this way. And I say to you then, whoever divorces his wife, how clear is this except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Again, Mark chapter 10, we do a more in-depth study upon this, but sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians deals with the issue of abandonment and abuse as well. We've covered it. But here, what I want you to capture and what I want you, would love for you to get your head around is just how radical Jesus' words are here. How countercultural these words were in the day of Jesus. Do you regard them as countercultural today too? I understand, I think, in small part, the ground that I'm walking upon, the thinness of the ice that exists here. May the grace of God go before as we begin to grapple with what Jesus is doing. You see, in the first century, the religious leaders regarded a man's right to divorce as inalienable. Like he's just born with the right to do this. The women of the day, on the other hand, had no right to it. They had a very small pathway to it, and that was they could appeal to the court, and if the court saw fit, they could make the man divorce the wife, but otherwise, no. Then you had this prevailing thought within the day that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. What, I, what we can't miss in all of this is how Jesus is rising up and he's holding the men responsible. Make no mistake, the focus in this text are the, are the men who are casting aside, objectifying women and throwing them and casting them aside so they can move on to a freer, richer, whatever life they were looking towards. He's calling about their abusive behavior and their objectification of women. He's holding them responsible, degrading them and casting them aside and placing the women of the culture of that day in positions where they would have needed to remarry to survive. And so what he's saying is this, look at what you're doing! By treating this so flippantly and callously, what you're doing is you're actually forcing people for the women of the day would have largely had to have gotten remarried in order to survive. And Jesus is saying, no. No. For the two of you shall become one flesh. For you've made a commitment before the Lord. And he's blessed you with the ability to hold to the commitment come difficulty and trial. 
And so what's Jesus' point? You want to be salt and light, commit to the permanency of biblical marriage. You want to be salt and light, protect the sanctity within your home. You want to be salt and light, couples invest in your marriage. You want to be salt and light, take date nights. Like you want to, you want to be salt and light, like look at each other and say, I love you regularly. You want to be salt and light, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Like you want to be salt and light, let your children see your affection for one another. Like you want to be salt and light, you kindle the fires from within. You want to be salt and light, You cry out to the Lord to heal over your insecurities and your pains and your struggles. Couples, we invest in our marriage. To those who are remarried, you remain committed to the marriage that you're in. To those who are remarried, you commit to the marriage that you're in. Those who are desiring marriage, prepare yourself for marriage. Grow in your discipleship now. As you become serious about this commitment, come to pre-engagement, pre-marriage counseling. We, we need to do all that we can so that we can be prepared to enter into this lifelong commitment. Church, let us be a place that protects the sanctity of marriage. Let us be a place where people can share their hurts. Let us be a place where people can find healing. Let us hear confessions and let us let the grace of God wash over that we may be healed and we can address these things. Friends, one of the brightest lights of the gospel in our world today are homes that are filled with committed Christians. Grounded in the gospel. Committed to the permanency of marriage. Let us be a church that rallies around this. Let us be a church that approaches us with grace and empathy. And let us be a church, let us be a place of compassion and strength for those who've been hurt and abused in these ways as well. God's grace. For the brightest light of the gospel in our world today, let me say it again, our homes filled with committed Christians grounded in the gospel. And point three, friends, Jesus moves on and say, this is going to happen as we keep our word. We've got to be people who are known for keeping our word. We've got to be people who are known for keeping our word. And again, you got two verses in this greatest sermon ever preached on the issue of marriage and divorce. Jesus gets in, he gets out, he deals with the matter of the day, and then he moves on in verse 33. As quickly as he enters, he comes right back out. Listen to what he says. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. Anything more than that comes from evil. What the world? No, what's he going on about? Like, what is happening here? You heard it said. You heard it said you shall not swear. No cussing? Is that what he's saying? No cussing? Okay, it's not what he's addressing here. What he's saying, he's not saying, he's not talking about cursing here. He's saying don't swear falsely. You've heard it said not to swear falsely, not to to take an oath and to break it, but to be people of your word. But look, he goes on to say this. But I say, don't even take an oath at all. What? What? 
Jesus, aren't there parts in the Old Testament where like God actually calls his people to oath? Doesn't God himself take an oath? Jesus, I do have this question. Before Pilate, did you not take an oath? Did you not speak under oath, Jesus? All right, here we go again. What is Jesus addressing here? He's using a measure of hyperbole for sure. He's making a point that what? Citizens in my kingdom will keep their word. They will be committed to the king. They'll be committed to their marriage. They'll, they will be people who when they say yes, it will mean yes. And when they say no, it will say no. When they say they're going to show up, they will be there. If they're going to buy it, they'll pay for it. If they're going to go in debt for it, they're going to return the money. What Jesus is addressing here, pen's ready if you want to write it down clearly. What Jesus is addressing here is flippantly invoking the name of the Lord and the oath to make yourself appear more credible. What Jesus is addressing here is flippantly invoking the name of the Lord and an oath to make yourself appear more credible. Now, for the sake of just illustrating, for the sake of you understanding, for the sake of what not to do. You've heard people say, I swear, right? I swear. They'll say, I swear, I swear to God. I'm swinging my hands to, I don't know why. <laughs> I do this when I'm, when I'm anxious. Like I, I do this when bad things could happen. Like this, this is like bad things could happen. Like don't do that. Don't say I swear to, just don't. What is Jesus saying? He's like, look, 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 look. My people who are going to invoke an oath flippantly. The oath God calls you to take, you take them. The oath the government puts you under and under the court of law, you take them. But for the person who's going to make a transaction and say, come on, come on, come on. Can I have your phone? I swear I'll give it back. Come on, can I have your phone? I swear. I, I swear I'll give back your phone. What is he thinking right now? I don't want to give him my phone if he's got to swear. Like, dude, what's your problem? Like, how insecure are you? How many promises have you broken that now you have to say, I swear, every time you want someone to believe you? You kidding me? My people don't got to be taking oaths. They don't got to be using the Lord's name in vain. We don't got to, you don't got to, don't be using the Lord, to, don't be using my name to give what you want. Don't be using my name to be defrauding people. You got no business using the name of the Lord to make your promises. That's what he's saying. You got no business using the name of the Lord. You got no business using heaven. You got no business using the temple. You got no business even on the hair of your chinny chin chin. I know it was up here. I do this too. Either one. Why? Because here you have the religious leaders doing their footwork again. They're doing their little happy dance, getting around the law, and apparently they had a whole book full of how you do oaths and which ones count and which ones don't. And Jesus is like, warning, that's one. Okay, two now. Okay, full five, you guys are out. Like it's, enough is enough. And so what was happening was they were essentially sanctifying, making a promise with your spiritual fingers crossed behind your back. They were essentially religiously 
presenting the holy wink. It appears the people within the culture of that day believed that if they didn't use the name of the Lord, then it didn't matter if they broke their word. And Jesus is like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. God's standard is truthfulness, period. God's standard is truthfulness, period. God's standard is truthfulness, period. God's people tell the truth and realize that anything they swear by belongs to and thus invokes God in any way. Anytime a Christian makes a promise, it includes the integrity of God, period. Anytime a Christian makes a statement, it, it imputes the integrity of God, period. And we all get the big lies. Like we get the like, I don't want to lose my head. I think what's even worse in the eyes of God is why you have to lie for the sake of our own prides on the little stuff. It's actually sometimes worse. You had to lie about that to make yourself look good and malign my name because you wanted to look like you were all that and a bag of chips. And there's so many applications here that would get me in so much hot water, but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit of God and the time we have left to address where you are on this matter in your own soul. But if you say yes, you means yes. If you say you're going to show up, you show up. If you say no, then it's no. If you say you're going to pay it back, you pay it back. If you say you're going to borrow it, you return it. Why? To the unbeliever, the validity of the gospel is tied directly to our integrity. To the unbeliever, the integrity of the gospel. The validity of the gospel is tied directly to our integrity. Jesus died to free us, friends. Jesus died to free us from all the reasons we would want to lie. Jesus freed us. Jesus died to free us from all the insecurities that would cause us to want to defraud. Jesus Christ died to free us from all of this. And this is why, friends, Jesus puts the stake in the ground here and says, look, the fear, the insecurity, the pressure, the selfish ambition, the impatience, the hurts, the doubts. Remember you're blessed. When you want to defraud to get more, remember you're blessed. When you want to lie to keep out of punishment, remember you're already blessed. When you want to defraud to achieve, remember that you're already blessed. Let us remember this today. The integrity of our faith is found in the authenticity of your yes. Have you said yes to God? And the potency of your witness is grounded in the validity of your no. Have you said no to the things that God desires you to say no to? If there's one thing that dulls the salt, if there's one thing that dims the light, it is in this area. For the tongue is deceitfully wicked. Who can 
We've all been there. We're like, I don't even know why I said that. I don't even know why that even came out. I don't even know how I found myself here. How in the world does this happen? What do we do in those moments? What do we do when the doubts creep in? What do we do when the discomfort arises? What do we do in the fear? What do we do when we find ourselves on the other side of a sinful transaction? We say, Lord, my yes to you is going to be yes. Forgive my sins. And I say no to what I just did and I expose it and here Lord God, I know this. Blessed are those who are mourned and those who see their sinfulness in the big and the small. Lord God, in this moment, I know that you comfort those who mourn. Lord God, I know you forgive and you'll replace this sinful desire inside of me with a thirst for righteousness. You see how this sermon, every single point of this sermon is tied directly back to the Beatitudes, which kicked it all off. You're blessed, church. Your yes can be yes. Your no can be no. And the most integral relationships in your life, from the great to the small, the Lord God is committed to you that you may keep your commitments to those you love. Amen. And so, Lord, we come to you with a need, with a great internal desire, Lord, for your presence, for your strength, for the saturation of your spirit to consume our hearts and our minds regarding the subject at hand. Father, with this sermon that you preached is revealing to us is that there's none of us who are exempt. There's none of us who've kept it. There's none of us who haven't sinned in anger, who've lusted in thought. There's not one person in this room who hasn't, hasn't uttered a lie off of their lips. Oh, Lord God, how we need your son, Jesus. Oh, Lord God, how we need the grace of your gospel. Oh, God, would you allow your grace to penetrate this room today? May we confess our sins back to you right now that we may be healed. Friend, right where you are, every person in this room, just do business with the Lord now. Come on, leave this place free. Leave this place unbridled by whatever it is that you've let go. Speak to the Lord. He's bending his ear to you right now. Confess your sins that you may be healed. Even as our church family is praying, there are some of you here today who I know who've yet to ever confess any sins to God. You're not sure if Jesus Christ has forgiven you and become your Savior. Oh, friend, right where you are, you can confess to the Lord that you know you're a sinner that needs a Savior. Maybe you're in a place where it would take you way too long to list every sin. You just tell God you know you're a sinner and ask Him to save you from your sins. The scripture says, he who confesses with their mouth, believes in their heart, and confesses in their mouth, they will be saved. So come on, friend, cry out to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your grace again. Give us strength. Let us say yes. Let us say no. But may our yeses to you be louder than all the words we speak. Yes, we will, Lord God. 
May we sing this back to you in commitment and prayer, we pray in Jesus' name.